Well, thank you again, everyone, for being here tonight. And uh, we are at the penultimate step. That's the, the second to the last. Uh, step 11. And there, so we'll have uh, one more lesson on this, and then we'll begin a, a new study. Step 11, uh, along with 10 in the, uh, in the recovery material, has to do with ongoing maintenance and ongoing recovery and, and uh, continuing to grow. And so what step 11 calls for is this. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and power to carry that out. Now, on one level, you can hear something like this, and this sounds like a lot of uh, Eastern mystical, psychological, mumbo-jumbo, you know, just, you know, all this prayer, meditation business. A few things. First of all, remember that uh, this... Uh, this material came about in the 1920s and 1930s, and it, it originated in a movement that was trying to take biblical principles and apply them to everyday life, and not trying to form a new church or a new denomination, but simply trying to practice the way of Christianity. And, and so I, I find that fascinating, and I respect that. Uh, step 11 recognizes that uh, it, it, it calls back to step 1 that says that we found ourselves um, completely powerless on our own to deal with our addiction. And so there's this surrender to God. 11 then says that we have to maintain that connection with God, that we can't do this on our own. And uh, you'll remember that some of the scriptures that were attached with those earlier principles were scriptures like Romans 7, where Paul says, I find this at work within me. The thing that I want to do, I cannot do. And the thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. And the resolution of that problem is that the Spirit of God makes the difference. The Spirit of God does what we are unable to do. Now, as we said this morning, not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification. That means not only in terms of putting us right with God, but in that's justification, but in terms of making us behave better and become more like the people God always intended for us to be. So one is how we stand before God, the other is how we stand before Others, you might think of it that way, that the way we live out our lives, that's the sanctification process. And that's the ongoing work of salvation that I think sometimes we've missed. But here in step 11, you have this idea of staying in conscious contact with God. Uh, learning what his will is. How does he want us to live? What kind of people ought we to be? You'll find a similar thought in 2 Peter when Peter talks about uh, what is to come and eternity and the new heaven and the new earth and he'll say that it's the home of righteousness and then he'll go from the vision of the future to the here and now and he'll say if that's the way it's going to be how then ought we to live now um, and notice here that in step 11 the the emphasis is on the power the power that comes from God to carry out that way of living so what scripture did uh, later applicants of this principle, of this step, use? 
The one that's used in Celebrate Recovery is very, very simple. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay. And so in this class, what I've tried to do is I want to find out why is that verse being attached to this? Why is that verse being used? Is that a good application of that verse? Is that verse, um, or what did it mean in its original setting? Why is it being said like that in Colossians, and, and what's it all about? And what you'll discover is, is that this is really only part of a larger thought in Colossians, and that this is not one single thought or one single sentence in Colossians by itself. But let's take a look at the background of Colossians. Colossi is, um, you know, I think if I had to visit um, any of the New Testament cities, this is the one actually that fascinates me the most. And maybe, Lord willing, one day I'll get to explore all that region and, and see all that. You know, I, I love it that people go on those tours. Of course, if you go to Colossae now, as I understand it, there's nothing there but a hill and some ruins. And, you know, I, I get that. I get that. But I think I like the church in Colossae because this isn't the big cities. These are the people that are off uh, down the river. You can see that it's inland there in, in what we would call Turkey. But this was the region called Phrygia. And so right out here at Ephesus, if I can see that far, there's a, there's a river that, that runs uh, out through there, uh, the Lycus River. And so it's a river valley, just like what we've got here with the Arkansas River Valley. And if you go inland, you've got these cities of Laodicea and Colossae and Herapolis. And they are right there in the, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, Fort Smith, Van Buren, and Mulberry. I mean, you know, they're all right there along the river. Just think of it like that. They're little communities that have sprung up around that, around that Lycus River Valley. And they're inland. So now here's the thing. Paul never had any direct contact that we know of. And when we, uh, when we read the letter to the Colossians, we find out that the church was probably planted by Epaphras, who's one of Paul's co-workers. And so when you start reading uh, in Colossians, the, uh, Paul addresses them and, and he says, um, he mentions Epaphras, he mentions the, uh, the background, the, the um, let's see here, I want to read a little bit of this, it's not very good, okay, um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God the Father for our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You've heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you, just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What that may mean is, that may mean that while Paul is in prison in Rome, 
his influence, Paul's influence in churches like Ephesus has spread out so that you have, again, remember that the, the process that we're seeing here in the first century is uh, that the gospel is being shared by others. The gospel would have been shared with Epaphras. Now Epaphras goes and shares it with them. And so we have all of the, you know, we, we talk about the apostles and we talk about Paul and Barnabas and Silas. Timothy, Titus, but here's the thing, for every one of them, there were dozens, maybe more, of unnamed Christians, men and women, who were just sharing the way of life and the news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified and is now risen and exalted and rules in heaven, and the new way of life that that opens up unnamed men and women who are just sharing that gospel we'll never know who they are but just because of this letter we get to hear of one of those Epaphras Uh, as far as I know not a lot of stories on Epaphras not a lot of information on Epaphras but Paul mentions him as a co-worker as an evangelist and I think it goes to show us too that being an evangelist is not a special job title it's not something that only a few can do no everybody has the privilege and the honor and the joy of sharing good news the gospel we have different gifts that contribute to that some are apostles some are prophets some are teachers Uh, but they um, everyone is is sharing this in some way so here's Epaphras Uh, he's ministered to help plant this group out there in Colossae and it may be that Colossae has sent uh, a gift to Paul. You remember, this is not, if you're in prison in Rome, even under house arrest, um, they're not going to take care of you. Not completely. You, you, still have to, uh, you still have to make sure someone's taking care of you. Uh, this isn't a uh, benevolent, kind, state-run system necessarily. So anything that they can do to help Paul out while he's in, in prison is going to be greatly appreciated. And so these churches may be supporting him and trying to, to win his freedom, whatever they are doing. This letter is something of a thank you letter, but the emphasis in the introduction is on them bearing fruit. The gospel's bearing fruit, verse 6 that's growing in the whole world and so it's bearing fruit among them as well so that as they hear this they're doing something with it Um, there is also if you look at the end of Colossians in the closing section uh, in 415 or let's go back to uh, 412 we'll see another mention of Epaphras Epaphras who is one of you a servant of Christ Jesus greets you he's always wrestling in his prayers on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills for I testify for him that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis now that's those other neighboring cities around Colossae along the river so Epaphras is moving between these cities and he's He's uh, done, done something there in all of those cities to share the gospel. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. 
And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. Wait a second, folks. We're missing a letter out of our Bible, aren't we? Um, There's some who believe that the letter to the Ephesians is the letter to the Laodiceans. I don't. I don't buy that. Um, I I think that uh, there's some sort of letter exchange and for whatever reasons, uh, you know, and the church goes through this process, and I believe that it's a process just as uh, involved with the Spirit of God as the writing of these letters. At no time does God just step in in a, in a miraculous way and hand a book to somebody. There's not golden plates that fall from heaven. There's not skywriting. Nobody falls into a trance and just starts transcribing uh, uh, messages. This is a very human process of writing and communicating but it's done by people who are inspired and who are led and who are guided by the Holy Spirit and if you stop and think about that is that really any different than what God accomplished in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ fully human but also fully invested with the Spirit of God and so much so he was the Son of God and to to preference one or the other or to say that he's 51% God 49% man is to miss the point it's it's the union it's the compatibility of the divine and the human it's what humanity was always truly meant to be and so I think it it makes sense that our scripture is the same way that it's this process that develops among the people through God's uh, work and I don't think, uh, to, to call it just the work of created human be- creative human beings would be a mistake. To say that it was just magic writing from God and the human agents were meaningless would also be a mistake. Because God chose those people to be his vessels and they were chosen for a reason. Uh, Paul was chosen to be his vessel to communicate these things for a reason. God will have to explain those reasons, but God knows what he's doing in all of that. So there may be a lot of letters from a lot of different apostles that, again, just don't exist and they didn't get, they didn't get uh, collected as part of what we call the New Testament. And well, that shouldn't worry us because the church going through this process selects and says, you know what, these are the writings that, that we need to keep. These are the writings that we need to read. These are the writings that we need to share. These are the ones that explain this very well. And for, uh, for that reason, there's something in this letter to the Colossians that was deemed good for all churches. Maybe the letter to the Laodiceans didn't say anything that the letter to the Colossians didn't. Or maybe it was so specific that it didn't apply. There's no way to know. We can speculate. But it doesn't need to worry us that there's some missing letter of the Laodiceans out there. I I guarantee you, even if we did ever discover it one day, we're not going to find something in there that's going to trump everything else and, you know, we're going to open it up and it's going to say, oh, by the way, let me be really clear, you know, and then it's going to solve some controversy. That's not going to happen. In the letter to the Colossians, which he wants the Laodiceans to read as well, and then all of us, He's talking about bearing fruit, that uh, the gospel bears fruit, and it bears fruits in people's life. So in chapter 3, 
well, up until chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul's gone, he goes very mystical, he goes very cosmic. He, he describes how the whole universe is put together. Uh, and in fact, you'll find a lot of similarity in this letter with Ephesians. Ephesians will maybe be a bit more detailed, but the themes, you'll track with it, they'll look a lot alike. There must be something in this region that is worth being said. There might be, this might be a way of sharing the gospel that appeals very much to the people of that region and their philosophies about the world and how the world is put together. And so Paul is explaining to them that Christ holds everything together. And it's here in Colossians where we have this image of Christ being not only the head over all things and the ruler over all things, but he's also the force that connects all things. Uh, uh, notice in uh, 15, uh, yeah, 115, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And there's that word for dwelling. The, the fullness of God, which means the, the full, total holiness of God can dwell and is pleased to dwell in Christ. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This idea continues, and, and Paul's unpacking what it means, but this is very much uh, the teaching, and if we ever do a study of Colossians, we'll be able to um, uh, go through that. But we're going to move ahead to chapter 3, and in three one he makes a transition. This is what every good preacher learns to do, and it is, if you say all of that about the cross, about the fullness of God, about being the firstborn from the dead and overall creation, you've got to ask a question for us here and now, and that is the so what question. I remember early on in preaching, I had somebody tell me that. They said, you've got to get to the so what. And I said, well, this stuff's just so rich on its own. He goes, I know. But in a sermon, you've got to hit the so what, because you've got to have something to walk out with. What does this mean? Paul knows that. He knows how to do that. In chapter 3, he says, you've been raised with Christ, so seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So what? So set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, right after, he, so, so he says, we are part of this, that the, everything that God is doing in Christ. Now, if that's true, there are a lot of instructions he wants to give. In our original languages, these show up in a particular form, and it's called an imperative. Um, you see this in Greek. We have the same thing in English. Um, there's different ways of expressing it. What, what, um, and I don't want this to come off sounding as if, well, if you don't know Greek, you're not really reading your Bible. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't have to know Greek, trust me. Um, 
but it is, it is interesting to look and see uh, different translations help us because some of them will carry out the idea of the, of the imperative, of the command word. Um, and it will often say, let us, uh, or uh, you must, or we must. Those are the ways you express that. And, and after this statement in the first part of chapter 3, Paul will have a series of those. So that he says, if we've been raised when, with Christ, then there are some things that we must do. And I've highlighted some of these for you, uh, just in, in a simple form. Uh, he says, um, if we've been raised with Christ, then um, verse 2, seek or set your minds on things that are above. In uh, verse 5, put to death, that's the command word. You put to death whatever in you is earthly. And here he has a list that it sounds a lot like the works of the flesh in Galatians. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming to those who are disobedient. These are the ways that you once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things. Uh, and here's his other command word. Rid yourself of these things. And that rid yourself word also means, uh, it, it has the meaning of, brush off or take off or discard and he's going to then come back to that image and he's going to say okay you're going to take off that and you're going to put on Christ you're getting a new uniform is what he's saying you're getting a new set of clothes of spiritual clothes you're going to you're going to take off the old rags and you're going to put on the new robe so he says rid yourself of these things that's um, verse 8 anger wrath malice slander abusive language from your mouth he's talking about virtues character the way we act the way we behave he's talking about behaviors this is he has just gone from Christ being connected to all things in the universe the the image of the invisible God and Lord over all things and now he's hitting home and here's the thing you could say well why didn't Paul lead with this why didn't he just give him the instruction list because if he did, all you get is this list of thou shalt and, and, and thou shalt not. Um, some of you know that my son works at the uh, Sight and Sound Theater in Branson. And we were just up there uh, last week. And, and they're doing the, the play Samson. And there's this, this wonderful little scene where, um, uh, you know, in Samson where the, the people of God, the Israelites, and they're living in the uh, Philistine land. They sing this little song, and I'm not going to do it justice. But it's great because they're talking about how hard it is to live in the Philistine world with God's rules. And, and they sing this little song and they go, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And they just keep saying that over. They know that they're the people who thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And they're, they're kind of struggling with that. And that's the way it can become for us if we don't understand that in getting rid of those things, we're actually on a way to, a, we're, we're, investing in a better way of doing things this is why Paul leads with the big stuff with the theology because now you see oh I've got to rid myself of wrath malice and slander because those don't fit into the world according to God those don't fit into the new way oh that's why He's not just cranky and wants me to get rid of this. He's saying that doesn't fit in with this new creation of which Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the first of that new creation. Oh, I see. 
So this is why now he can say we need to get rid of it. Verse 9, don't lie to one another. Well, that's good. Yeah, thou shalt not lie. But notice he, he elaborates. Because you've stripped off the old self with its practices. The people of the world lie to each other. The people of the world mistreat one another, but, but not you. And you, verse 10, you've clothed yourself with the new self. And that's another imperative. Clothe yourself uh, with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And see, in that renewal, there's no longer Greek and Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now we define ourselves in Christ. Which, by the way, this fits very in very well with recovery, among other things, because one of the things that, 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 uh, that is done in a Christian recovery group is you never define yourself in terms of your flaws. I'm an addict, I'm a, I'm an anxious, I'm a nervous wreck, I'm a, you know, an overeater. No, no, I'm a believer in Christ. This is what I struggle with. But I'm a believer in Christ. I am in Christ. That's what you want to be. And that's what all of us are. <clears throat> and I want you, you know, we need to always remember that. We're not defined by our sins. Our sins are what keep us from, from being what God wants us to be. But that's not what defines us. And so all of these things that we think matter, he says, those fall away when we're in Christ. So 12, here's the imperative. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourself. Now look at the new virtues. <coughs> Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This sounds like fruits of the Spirit. And it's the same idea. The, those lists were never meant to be exclusive. As if that list, that's all there is. No, it's all of that stuff that participates in the spirit of what God is doing. So clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Uh, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Now, Here's what's interesting, and it doesn't always uh, show up. Where he says, forgive one another, um, that looks like a command. Well, it is, but it isn't. It's not a command because in the original, it's, it's what we call a, a, a participle. That means it's just, you know, it, it, we usually say that in English. We would say forgiving each other. <clears throat> Meaning that you're doing that. Forgiving one another is an expression of what it means to bear with one another. So you're going to be forgiving one another just as the Lord has forgiven you because that's what the command to bear with one another looks like. And we're going to see that again. Uh, he's going to say, for example, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Um, that's verse 15 to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, that actually is a one of the command words. And here's our verse, 316, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, let it dwell is that command. Let it dwell, you must let it dwell. Let the word of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it dwell in you the way that uh, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Now, it's fair to translate this then as teach and admonish, as if those are commands. But the way they're working is they're commands 
in connection with the word, uh, let it dwell. The way we would translate that, and some of your translations, I think New American Standard will do this, will translate it as uh, teaching and admonishing. In fact, I've got a slide on this. Let's, there you go. Here's New American Standard, and it gets more of the flavor and the dynamics of the original language. The command is, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness or with grace in your hearts to God. You see, since those are participles and they're doing the I-N-G, they are describing what it looks like to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So that sometimes when we talk about, you know, okay, well wait, this is our verse for why we're a cappella. Well, okay, sure. And I'm not knocking that. I'm just going to show you that it's much more three-dimensional than we've even realized. That when we're coming together and we're singing and we're teaching one another and we're singing these songs and we're admonishing, which means to encourage and to instruct. And by the way, that's not just for this arena right here on Sunday morning. You know, some of the best lessons that you learned as a kid, I'm sure, and some of the best lessons that our kids learn is when we teach them these little songs, right? Remember all those little songs that we learned? But those stick with us. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Wise man built his house upon the rock. We, we sing those songs to kids. We, we convey those words because it teaches. And I've learned, too, that many of you know songs that, you know, and listen, that's one thing. If you're worried about ever, oh, you know, I don't know that I could teach the kids class, just go back there and sing little songs with them, little songs that you know. Hey, that, you have no idea what that could do. But singing that song is what it looks like to have the word of Christ richly dwelling in you. Now, in Ephesians, Paul is um, a little more explicit when he says, first of all, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes into this participle, teaching, singing. Now, I have it on good authority, and, I, and, and thankfully none of y'all know this, but I have it on good authority that, that sometimes uh, drunks go to singing, okay? And, uh, and boy, it's, it's not pretty singing either, you know, and it's just, oh, they're just happy. Paul knew that too. It's kind of a universal. And he says that these people that are getting drunk on wine, you know, they're singing their songs, and they're singing about stuff, and it might be bawdy, raunchy stuff. But he said, you, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you sing songs that teach and admonish. And, and why should the other side get have, have all the fun, which really isn't fun at all? We are the ones who ought to be able to sing this. We sing with thankfulness. Because if the word of Christ is dwelling in you and it's bearing fruit, then we learn to be grateful. We learn to have gratitude. And so our songs come naturally. It's not some commandment rule. Okay, you got to sing. Sing me a song. No, it's, it's, it's the natural outgrowth of the word dwelling in us. <clears throat> so there's a lot more to um, this. Oh, by the way, he ends it all up with this furthermore statement. Whatever you might do. And that's not a command word. That's a, that's a word that's filled with a lot of potential. That says, listen, and whatever you might ever do, whatever you may ever find yourself doing, do it all in the name of the Lord.
Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father. Kind of the final test of everything, that in everything we do, if we can't do it with that sort of thankfulness, if we can't do it in his name, then it's probably something we shouldn't be doing. So this is our verse, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That was the verse that's attached to step 11. We find out then that, that, that what else there is is this description of what that word of Christ dwelling on us looks like. It looks like us expressing it. <clears throat> Which, by the way, that's the training that Epaphras probably had to teach the gospel is that he could go out and teach and admonish and tell others uh, about the gospel. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, there's a lot of talk about what that is, you know, the definition of those. I've, I've never really found that it, I'll just be blunt, I've never really found that it matters that much. I mean, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, it's all just good praise, it's good it, they're, they're uh, you know, you can you have your 150 psalms, you have your hymns, uh, you know, whatever. These are these are just types of songs. It's a way of conveying something. And by, and keep in mind, they're not you know they're not talking stamps Baxter here. Now I can say that with some confidence, okay? And they're not and they're not talking about AVB acapella vocal band either. I, no offense to those groups, okay? Because those are good. I, you know, I'm not really sure what first century stuff sounds like. I used to have a CD that had some stuff that sounded like it. Boy, you know, it was, it's different. You know, it's kind of a chant and everything. But listen, that's what it meant for them to express that in their way. So be it. But there's, there's a message attached to it. It's the word of Christ coming alive in us. And uh, I think that means a lot. The... Um, so if step 11 says we sought through prayer and meditation, which by the way, I want to add just one little thing there. Meditation gets a bad rap. The Eastern concept of meditation is to empty your mind. The scriptural meaning of meditation is to fill your mind, but to fill it specifically with God's word, to meditate on his word, to meditate on his truth. That's why some of these songs that we sing and some of these songs that we carry with us, it's, it's good to carry those songs with you and to remind one another of those. It's good for you to memorize your scriptures and to take them with you and to share them with one another uh, because that's going to get us through difficult times and it's also going to make us thankful when we need to be thankful. That's what it means to improve our contact with God is learning His language. And praying for knowledge of his will and the power then to carry that out. And, and by the way, I always recommend that if your prayer life falters, and, and let's be honest, all of us have trouble at times developing our, our, our prayers. I would recommend that you find your psalm. One of the psalms, one of those 150 psalms, is going gonna, is gonna to be where you find yourself today. And you can borrow that. God has given that to you free of charge. And that can be your prayer. Just as it's been the prayer of disciples for countless centuries. Even a thousand years before Christ. Because he did the same thing. And prayed the Psalms and would use the words of Scripture. You'll find him saying those things. When he's 
crucified on the cross, he uses Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where he's at at that moment. And he goes and plucks those words because those words he knows. And it's how he expresses himself then in that prayer. So, so we can do the same. I think another verse that would go with this well, um, I think that's a fine verse that they fit in here because if you want the word of, of Christ to dwell in you richly, sure. It's kind of generic, but I like it. But I like this one. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit. And you see that even attaches to the, to the idea of the image in Colossians. Um, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And this illustrates, these are the words of Jesus as well, how important it is for us to have that, what is it, conscious contact with God and that, that power. You and I on our own can, do not have the power to carry out his will. But if we abide in Christ, then we are like the branch that's connected to the vine that will bear fruit. And the fruit that we bear as disciples is the quality of life that glorifies God and demonstrates his will at work within us. This is not some verse to be used for prosperity gospel. Hey, if you abide in Jesus, then you know, you'll be a millionaire in, in 15 weeks. No, that's not, that's not what it's saying. It's saying if you want to live life the way God always intended, then abide in him. Abide in Christ. He's your model. He's your Lord. He's the one that you want to imitate. But more than that, you want to be connected with him. Uh, that's our lesson for tonight. If any of you need to partake of communion, it's been prepared in room 100. Uh, you can go there now while we sing this song, and we'll be dismissed in prayer after this song. Let's stand and sing.